Thank you, worship team. It's a beautiful song. We are in Ephesians this morning. We will be in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. So we've started our, our spring series. We'll be in this for the springtime. Uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Last week we just covered the first two verses. And so we'll spend, we'll be covering quite a bit more this morning. And um, the passage this morning is one uh, that many have memorized. I know our Grace kids went through it and memorized it uh, several times. And uh, many of you may have memorized it as well. Also in February for our confession of faith at the end of the service, at the end of the sermon. Whereas right now in January we're doing the Heidelberg Catechism question one. In February we'll be reading these actual uh, verses every week so to help us memorize them and understand them. Uh, so it's just a beloved uh, passage. This book, as I mentioned last week, was uh, the favorites of many like John Calvin's and, and others. And it's uh, just a glorious letter for us to soak in and listen to. So with that in mind, let's read now Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you for such a glorious gospel that Paul, through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, would utter these words, would write these words, and that you would deliver them to us this very morning to be revived, to understand our true calling, to know who we really are, and to be freshly reminded because you know that our hearts need this. Jesus, you know that we are prone to uh, all the different ways of the world that attract us and where we're prone to think that maybe we're not beloved and blessed at times. And so we need your spirit freshly to remind us by hearing this gospel this morning for your glory. Amen. Um, in sermon uh, cla prep class, one of the quotes that gets floated around a lot is a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He was a great... Baptist preacher in the 1800s in London, uh, considered maybe one of the better Reformed preachers of all time, and he would talk about his process as being this. He would read the passage, 
and he encouraged preachers to lie a soak in the passage, to like a bath, just, just understand it, get in it, let it roll over you. And if ever there was a passage where that would make so much sense, it's this one. You, you can't get to the bottom of this text. You can preach it, read it, meditate on it every day, and you'll never fully get to the depths of its meaning and its comfort. And so this morning, we are, are definitely going to do our best to at least get us started in that process. As I said last week, I hope you will read Ephesians, the letter, in its entirety weekly throughout the series. I really think that would be incredibly powerful for your uh, walk with Christ. But one of the interesting sets of, uh, setups of the Ephesians letter really depicts the entire Bible's version of how we do the imperatives. All of us know what imperative, you know what imperatives are from grammar, right? The what to do. An imperative has the exclamation, go do this. The imperatives um, are kind of the things we tell ourselves, I should be doing this, I should be doing that, I want to do this. Um, and the goal for most of us is we do the right thing, the imperatives. It's imperative we do this, read our Bible, exercise, eat well, whatever. So we get to the indicatives. Now, how many of you know what an indicative is in grammar? I didn't until I heard this uh, years ago. Thankfully, I had to study English again in seminary. But the indicative is just the state of what is true. You will often say things like, well, it's indicative of that person to be late or to be on time or to give gifts. Or it's describing. It's the what is true of us. And so the way the world works is this. Imperatives lead to indicatives. When I do this, I'll be this. That's the way I think most religions work. That's the way often, sadly, even Christian groups can work if we're not careful, churches and messages. I think most pronounced, it's the way our heart works. You catch yourself telling yourself what you're going to do differently to feel better, to be clean. And here's Paul writing this letter, not only to the church of Ephesus, but to all the churches. And what does he do? He begins with the indicative. He says this, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you what is true about you. Understand at a deep, deep level who you really are. And then later, chapters 4, 5, and 6, based on those truths and fueled by those truths, will process some things that will be good for you and for the church. So we start with the indicatives and move toward the imperatives um, if you want a proposition, we must understand the truth about our relationship to God before or in order to become the person we were made to be. And I think so often, if we're honest, we might get that in our brain. But again, if you're like me, start paying attention to the, the self-talk, what, what plans you're making, what strategies you're forming, what new habits you think you're going to do to become a better version of yourself. Let's go back to the gospel over and over. What is true first? What's indicative of me first before I get into the imperatives of what I ought to do? So the way we'll look at this, and I just want you to note, there's a phrase that comes up several times in our passage, the praise of his glory. Uh, the praise of his glory, several times in our passage. What does that mean? It means when we come into contact with true glory, we, we praise. That's the, what we all do. And God is glorious, especially if he's for you. And you're not cast out and he, he loves you and you are loved by him and you love him. You praise him and we come to this passage in praise. We come to this passage saying thank you. Um, one slight illustration. If you 
were to sit down with a lawyer and they were to tell you of the passing of some distant relative who it turns out you're a benefactor and they begin to tell you all the stuff you get, are you going to begin to question it? Like, well, I don't know. How do I do this? And is it, I mean, you're going to just be sitting there like, I get the house and the car and the yacht and the art collection. What are you going to be feeling? Praise. You might even be thinking, I don't know this person a little better. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. This, we are hearing from God. Here's what you get and what I'm giving you, what I've given you already. Let's praise him and let's seek his glory. And the three things we're going to simply look at is the what, the why, and the how of this blessedness. So of this praise. So the what. What is the beginning of this praise? Like what's happening that even begins this process? And um, we're going to start with some harder theology. I can't unpack all this theology perfectly, mostly because I don't have the capability. But even if I did, I don't have the time. So we're going to just process some of the key things. And the first one is, right out of the gate, you, if you are in Christ, were chosen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 tells us. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose, verse 4 says, us in him before the foundation of the world. How does that sit with you? You were chosen, right? We talk about the word predestination in the reformed world. If you've been around grace for any length of time or RUF, you will know that we believe God has chosen his people from the foundation of the earth, the foundation of the world, that before time began, you were known you were chosen and he's pursued you. We see that very clearly in verse 5 when he says, in love, I'm trying to find it, he predestined us. Also in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will. Now, I want to just, I know that some of you are unhappy with that theology. And I want to address those of you that are unhappy with it. And I want to reaffirm those of us that might think we're happy with it by saying this. Let's look at the negatives, first of all. Um, when I've had conversations about predestination, especially at RUF with students wrestling with this, which you should, I think when people get a little bit older and have jobs, they just quit arguing theology. And they go, fine, I just want to come to church. So uh, we appreciate the search, the digging. Thank you, Simon, for keeping me on my, I feel like I'm at a reward ceremony. Thank you. Um, predestination, the negative. There's two negatives I want to talk about. The positive negative and the negative negative, okay? Positive negative of the negative views. First, people will say, okay, I believe and I'm a Christian, but what about my, and then they insert Aunt Sally, Cousin Billy, you know, my all these unbelievers they know, and they get nervous. What about those people? Or maybe the, the proverbial, you know, unreached people group. I call it the positive negative because there is at least some desire for those people to be reached, right? So that's good news. And so to that I would say the, gospel, the doctrine of predestination is not suggesting that those people aren't going to come to Christ. We don't know. There's no list. Nobody this side of heaven has the names. We, in fact, would hope that maybe everybody that ever hears the gospel would receive it. Certainly it's possible. If you can hear right now the gospel of Jesus Christ and you think, man, I want to follow Jesus, it is for you and you can. In fact, that very thought came to you as a gift. The negative negative was like this. 
I like to think that I've done something special to believe. You know, I heard the gospel and so did my roommate. They kept partying. I changed. So there's this sort of like, I want to hold on to my thinking or my behavioral changes. I think we can all agree that's, that's negative. Like there's nothing you've done. There's nothing you can do. That, that you can't even make yourself appreciate the truth of the message. Why does Paul tell us about the doctrine of predestination and so many other writers? Let me say this. It's always, in my understanding of Scripture, it's always a doctrine delivered to those who already believe as a comfort. The, the Ephesian uh, congregation and all those in the region at that time are facing turmoil, just as not to the degree or the same way we are, but it's a sense of which saying, hey, I know you are wrestling with your faith. I know you struggle in your sin. I know that you even doubt sometimes whether God loves you. Let me tell you something Paul would say from the foundation and before the foundation of the world. He chose you. He predestined you. He loves you. Uh, just a couple of ways to maybe nuance that or illustrate that. The first would be the parable of the sower. Uh, I love that parable because Jesus gives this parable of these different feel of these different soils, and then I, he explains why parables and explains some are going to like not hear and some are going to hear. Of course, most of us are like, "Gee, that feels really harsh." And then most of the crowd walk away. Thanks for the story, Rabbi. It's like the, the they didn't have Netflix, so they heard there was a story that was going to be told. They came out. They heard this interesting story. They thank the man and they leave. And then those that are kind of like going, I have no idea what you just said, are the disciples. And he looks at them and says, you know what I just said? No. Let me explain it to you. And he lovingly, carefully explains the parable. So here's the beauty of this doctrine. Do you want to lean into Jesus? Then the Holy Spirit is working. And it's for you. And I would encourage you to lean in all the way. Also in John 6, after Jesus explains the really hard theology about the bread being his body and the wine being his blood. And most of the audience thinking this is cannibalism, just leave. And he looks back to the disciples. He says, are you all going to go? Are you going to leave? And Peter says, where else would we go? You have the very words of eternal life. Again, what's Peter saying? I'm perplexed. This is hard. I trust you. And he leans in. So when Paul begins to say that you have been predestined, know that it's a comfort saying God has known you and loves you and is comforting you even before the imperatives. But understand also that it's predestined for adoption. We're still on point number one, the what. What's going on? You have been predestined for adoption as sons and daughters. Now, I don't have a lot of time on the son thing. I do want to say this. A lot of people want to say sons and daughters, and it's absolutely sons and daughters. But in that original audience, it would have been worse if they had said sons and daughters because the sons had all the benefit. So it's sort of like we're all being grafted into the people who had the benefit. I can't vouch for that culture. I'm just saying it made sense to them. In our present sense, it, it, of course, sons and daughters, right? Um, in fact, in that culture, the older brother was even given more of the honor. Now, there's a good reason for that. If the father passes away and the, and the older brother is godly, he'll mediate the father's um, estate well to the family. If he's selfish, he won't. And, of course, Jesus is the true older brother. 
who mediates perfectly the Father's love to the other brothers and sisters, all of us. So just, that's a little bit on sonship, but we've been adopted as children, sons and daughters of God. And I just want you to hear this quote from Packer that's on the front of our worship guide. We've read it a few times here before. It's very helpful from his book, Knowing God. If you ever want to know a great introductory theological book, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. You and I have been adopted by, through God's foreordaining adoption. He's brought us into his family. And I cannot imagine a more amazing, comforting message of a father or mother to their adopted child, but to say something along the lines of, I, I have always loved you. And I would, I've, oh, this is the way it was always meant to be. And just the comfort of knowing we are God's and he is ours. That's the what for the, for the blessedness and the praise of his glorious grace, but the why. Now, why has he called us? Why has he adopted us? We're going to work backwards from verse 14. In verse 14 it says this, um, the spirit has guaranteed our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There you have it. So here we are talking about being adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. Why? We get an inheritance. That's amazing. Uh, earlier in verse 3 it says um, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So furthermore, this inheritance isn't simply physical, though the spiritual realm in the future will contain the physical, but there's spiritual blessings as well, our supernatural blessings. And so we have this inheritance we're longing for um, that for me it feels a lot like the Beatitudes. If you know the Beatitudes, you have these qualities, blessed are the people with these qualities, and then what they'll get. And there's these inheritance language. You'll get the kingdom of heaven. You'll, you'll be comforted. You'll inherit the earth. You'll be satisfied. You'll receive mercy and see God. You'll be called sons of God. And finally, again, the kingdom of heaven. So there's this inheritance that is yours. With, you've done nothing for it. But simply by being you, known from the foundation of time, God has reached out and said, I've adopted you, and I have an inheritance for you. That's verse 14. But working backwards, verse 10 gives us a little bit more of a glimpse of what's happening. It tells us that there's this plan that for the fullness of time, God has this plan. To unite all things in him, that's in Christ, making Christ the center, things in heaven and things on earth. Now in Genesis, we have heaven and earth that are more like the solid ground versus the, the sky. But in, after the fall, heaven is the unseen realm and the earth is the seen realm. We see earth, we don't see heaven. 
Now, in the future, we're not going to have the earth just disappear and only be in some floaty environment. But rather, the unseen and the seen will become one, uniting all things in Christ. So we long for a new heaven and a new earth. We talked about Revelation 21 last week. But when Jesus says, I am coming to make all things new. We pray it every week. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. So the purpose of our, the why of all of this, of the adoption and the, and the predestination is that we would be brought into this new reality, this inheritance of a new earth and a new heaven. But then if we back up just a little bit more, he tells us right at the beginning these words. Again, I'll read the verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. That's hard. I think we have so much struggle with those words, especially in our modern contexts. So let me just kind of try to unpack that a little bit. Um, First of all, um, I think all of us like things that are holy and blameless. We like justice. We like when the world works the way it's supposed to. We like it when we operate accordingly to what God has done in our lives. So we love holiness. I think our fear, if we're not, if we're if we're honest, is that we're going to show up to the party, and someone's going to say, "Oh, remember." I'm looking for those that are holy and blameless. You didn't make the cut. Anyone fear that? It's kind of running through the back of our minds. Please understand this passage is so rich in mercy. And I'll explain it more in our next point. But the holiness and the blameless, blamelessness is the record of Christ. The law has been taken away. You will not show up and God has a yardstick in measuring your actions. He, you are in Christ and you are welcomed in. If you can get past that fear, then maybe we can turn the corner and understand that Jesus is going to also prepare us to like heaven, to like things to be glorious, to like being in the presence of God, to want to sing his praises and to do good things and to care for people. Because when the law has been lifted and we are set free in Christ, holiness and blamelessness become beautiful in chapter 5, Paul gives this amazing description of how the church is like the bride of Christ. And in verse 29, he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Now he's talking, we're the flesh of Christ. He says, just as Christ does the church. In other words, Jesus is preparing you and I individually and as a body of Christ, that is the church universal, to come into heaven and to love and glorify God and and flourish there. But by no means will there be a yardstick wondering if you measure up because you have the righteousness of Christ. So here's my illustration. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Who hates dancing? No girls are raising their hands. Interesting. Okay, a couple. Well, I'm going to go, this is one of those moments where I'm going to say stuff and one of you will be like, nope, still hate dancing. That's fine. But my guess is those of you that hate dancing aren't good at it. Is that fair? It's not like, no, I'm really, really good at it. I have a lot of rhythm. I have no fear of man. I just walk on. But you know what? I still don't like it. No. It's that you have these problems with it. 
what would it look like if you walked into like the next dance situation and a couple of things happened? Number one, you were like spritzed with some kind of drug that made you not fear people. If, that, if we could develop that. And I'm not talking about alcohol. Secondly, everyone claps no matter how bad you're doing. They love the way you're going, right? And thirdly, and this is the best part, you get a dance partner. Now, this is weird for guys, I know. In Fort Collins uh, at the church we were there, the brother of the church planter brought in a dance. His brother's a dance instructor and started teaching how to dance. And my wife's like, learns, Ryan, he knows like how to guide and all this stuff. And I just is like, I'm just a failure, you know. But what I learned by observing, because I wasn't going to let him lead me through dancing, was um, by being led well, you actually can do well. And it's actually this moment where all of a sudden, I guess, those that raise their hands that say we don't like it might actually go, you know what, I could like that. I could like something that I hate because the truth is I hated it because I thought it would make me look stupid. I would feel shame. I would look awkward. And if the truth is you would actually come through that time knowing other people well, enjoying the experience, and actually improving, you might like the things you hate. That's just a small picture of holiness that maybe we should start realizing we say we don't like it because we just think we're going to fall on our face, but Jesus is making you holy. Jesus is the one guiding you in the dance. And Christians should be the ones the most free to walk onto the dance floor, both literally, okay, right, and figuratively. Am I using those words right? I don't know. Um, but in, in the life we live, like we, the law is gone. We have an inheritance. He's uniting all things in heaven and earth. We are now free to go into our life for his glory. And that's how I want to finish. Our last point is going to be how we do that. Like how does that work and where is that in our passage? So here we are longing for these things. We've been adopted. Uh, we see that he's creating this new heavens and this new earth of which we are a part and we are to be presented as holy and blameless. And we want to see some measure of that this side of heaven. And, of course, for eternity, how? And I'm going to remind us of verse 2 where Paul says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace. Now, the word grace is tricky. I think a lot of our modern Christian culture doesn't even know what to do with it. I heard an illustration recently. Um, someone was saying they heard a parent punish this way, or punish their child for doing something wrong this way. The child did the wrong thing. The parent said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give you candy to show you God's grace. And of course, if I'm the kid, I'm like, awesome. But that's the licentious side. That's the antinomian. Like, I'll just go out and do bad things all the time. Maybe a slightly better version of this. I'm still not sure how I feel about it, so don't necessarily try this. I think we tried it once. Uh, some friends did it this way. A kid did something wrong, saw they did wrong, felt bad for doing wrong, but they needed to be punished. In that family, that punishment would have been a spanking at that age and that time. And so right before the spanking, the dad, okay, just please give me some grace as you hear this illustration. The dad said, here's what we're going to do, little Billy or whatever. And the mom spanked, yeah, this isn't awkward. <laughs> Just fought, you understand, a swat, a swat to the dad. And the dad um, received the punishment of the child. And in this case that we heard it, the child was actually mortified 
that the dad was being spanked for the child's behavior. And I actually thought that's a lot closer because the point is this. Grace isn't just God going, hey, I just don't care. I just, I'm not worried about it. No. Grace is that God said, something has to happen for this. There is a cost. And it's going to be Jesus who takes the punishment. And so as you track through our passage, and I'm going to keep encouraging you to read it, I hope these words will continue to stand out. Verse 3 says, blessed, he's blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he's chosen us in him. That's Christ. And verse 5, predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him, referring to Christ, we have redemption. Verse 9, the mystery set forth in Christ. Verse 10, to unite all things in him. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And verse 13, in him, in him you also were sealed. So over and over Paul is telling us every part of your flourishing is because you're in Christ. That doesn't mean you have ceased to exist, but it means your new existence, which we'll learn is called the new man later, is found in Christ. Your identity is him. Several times this week, and I've just noticed it this week, and I'm going to only speak to this of a personal expression, I would be praying, I'd be spending my time in the morning, and this is not like, oh, he's, what an amazing pastor. I really do try to get up and read some psalms and journal, and I've noticed a few mornings where I'm doing that completely in the flesh, like 100% sitting there by myself, autonomous. I'm not saying God is not present. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't at work. I'm just saying my p- disposition was, com- and I remember on one of these particular mornings, like 20 or 30 minutes later, I was like, I have not prayed. Like I haven't even said, Jesus, will you meet me? Will you join me? And in both of these examples, uh, the moment I, my heart opened up to realize I'm not me, it's a we, I asked Jesus to reveal himself, it was like scales fail from, fell from my eyes. And I think we do this. We wake up, please hear me, we wake up almost daily by ourselves, alone, like orphans. And we seek to go figure out even Christian things on our own. There's nothing more dangerous than a pastor who studies his Bible without Jesus. So I ask for forgiveness. I need Jesus to open my eyes daily and moment by moment to realize I cannot face this problem on my own, this relationship on my own, this dilemma, this praise, whatever I'm dealing with, I am in union with Christ, I am free, and now I can begin to approach the life he's called me to live. That's how we do it. And then finally, the second part of how we do it and the beauty of this passage and of so much of our modern faith is that we have a Holy Spirit. He not only, Christ not only went to the cross and his blood was poured out for us, but that blood is applied to us. This is the heavenly spiritual blessings that was already said in verse 3 because of what we're told in verses uh, 13 and 14 that we have the Holy Spirit who is our guarantee and our seal. In the Roman world, that would be like a stamp or a, um, a branding on an animal, even slaves. We don't have that on our skin. We have the living God dwelling in us and joining us corporately as a seal and a guarantee. That is what we have in Christ. 
and what we have in the Spirit. So do you hear this passage is a Trinitarian passage. God, the Father, adopted you. Before you, while you were enemies, he sent Jesus to you. Jesus came and rescued you and applied his salvation to you by putting his Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. So my closing thoughts would be this. I want you to think of home. Many of us had good homes and many of us had bad homes. Maybe we have good homes now. Whatever your view of home, I think most of us can at least imagine sort of the Norman Rockwellian longing for home. And understand that the only true home you can have has to have these properties. Number one, it doesn't go away. It can't just fade with time. Number two, you're accepted. You're welcomed into that home. And number three, that home includes all of his people. And that's what we have. I want to read you just a couple of quick excerpts from the Psalms as we conclude. Psalm 27 is the psalm that's saying, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the home or the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And then Psalm 73, he's, this psalmist Asaph has been wayward. He's been jealous of the people who seem to have it all together. He's thinking, man, my faith isn't working. My being a pastor is not working. And then he goes into the sanctuary trying to think about this. He was weary some tasks trying to process this. And what does he do? Walks into the house of God, discerning the end of those behaviors. And then famously toward the end of the psalm, it says, nevertheless... I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may and will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I think this passage is a passage of home. But rather than the Old Testament version of home, that is the temple being there, the Spirit has brought home into you. So wherever you go, the Spirit is with you. And you always have what these Psalms are pointing to in Jesus. We can come back over and over to this passage and those like it in Ephesians and bathe in them and soak in them. Where are you going for your home? A lot of modern people use the word tribe. Have you used that word? I've done it. That's my tribe. And there's nothing wrong with that. We have tribes, we have people, we have groups. Those are fine things. Unless they take the place of our true home, which is Jesus dwelling in us and the church where he has placed us. This church particularly, sure, but the church universal. Jesus is coming for his bride of which we are a part. I would ask you to watch for, here's the closing application. Pay attention to your imperative. Catch yourself. Medicating your frustrations with what you're going to change. Or maybe someone else should change. Catch yourself. Pay attention. And go, ah, oh, there it is. I'm starting with imperatives. Trying to get to the indicative. And come back to Ephesians and start with the indicative. This is true of me right now, even if I just murdered that person right there. 
Right now, this is true of me. Now I repent of that. I'll take the punishment. I'll go whatever. But right now, without any changed behavior or years of proof or months of, this is true. If you're in Christ, no matter what sin, what heinous secrets, what problems, whatever, if you are in Christ, this is true. And you can bring those to him. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you know our hearts and you did not wait for us to string together a week, a month, or a year of imperatives before you give us the indicative of the cross. That we are adopted sons and daughters. Your blood has been shed for our transgressions, and we are yours. Father, forgive us, forgive me for often forgetting that truth and thinking if I could just do X, Y, or Z, this shame, this struggle, this frustration would go away. Teach us to bring our shame, our struggles, our patterns of sin to you. Just as Paul knows this audience is struggling, he starts with this beautiful truth. Teach us to come and do the same for your glory. Amen.